Welcome to Superintendent Radio Network. I'm Guy Soprano. Labor, labor, labor. The situation certainly hasn't gotten any better for golf course superintendents and golf course operations this year, but there could be help out there. Joining us is our friend Tyler Bloom. Tyler is the founder, owner, principal, pretty much every title you could possibly have for Tyler Bloom Consulting which launched this year to help golf course maintenance operations in the green industry solve some of its labor issues. Tyler is a former golf course superintendent. You may have read some of his contributions to Golf Course Industry Magazine this year, and it's great to have him on the podcast because not only is labor on golf courses in high demand, labor coverage is in high demand, and Tyler is definitely the perfect guest to have on a podcast to discuss this topic. Well, Tyler, thanks for joining us. It's great to have you on the, the podcast again. You're a repeat guest. We had you on, I believe, in 2019 to talk about some labor successes you've had. And we thought it'd be great to have you come on again here at the end of 2020. And the first thing I want to ask you is you're one of the most serious and intense people I've met. What is it going to take to get you to laugh on this podcast? <laughs> I appreciate you for bringing out one of my blind spots. <laughs> Usually, as I said, it's I'm laughing at myself. If you can't laugh at yourself, you take yourself way too seriously. So I appreciate that comment. It's certainly been an interesting year for you, and you've done, uh, it's safe to say, more traveling than any point you've ever had in your career. Do you have any funny road stories off the top of your head? Oh, man. Most recently, um, <laughs> two nights ago, I was driving home uh, coming from a from a search process, and I was on 476 going back up to northeast Pennsylvania, and I realized there's only so many stops, you know, on the turnpike, and so looking at my gas mileage, I'm thinking to myself, all right, I can't get to the next stop um, where I need to go, so I'm going to have to pull off. So I pull off the gas station, and I go, in, um, go inside the use restroom, come back out, my wife calls me, and this is like the story of like you know pretty much everything. Like she interjects interjects what I'm doing in my thought process, so I pull out of the rest stop and I start going back home. And I'm like, shit, I'm not gonna make it. I'm gonna make the next stop, so I had to like pull a Yui um, on the PA turnpike to go back the opposite direction to go back and get gas, and uh, you know repivoted, but. That's kind of recent, my own stupidity. So if you wanted to say, how do I laugh? I laugh at myself um, sometimes. Did you stop at a Wawa to get gas? Unfortunately, no. Um, it was a, a Pennsylvania Turnpike stop. You might have them every 20 miles, but no, not Wawa. Yeah, a little back. Say, I'm, a, I'm, a sheets, I'm a sheets person. That was my next question. Tyler and I are both Pennsylvania-born. Tyler lives there. Now I don't live in Pennsylvania, and I was going to ask you, you a Wawa or sheets person, and for our listeners that don't, know much about pennsylvania they're the two big regional gas station convenience store they're even restaurants now chains they sell beer now too so it's like yeah kind of crazy sheets is definitely for me i'm a sheets guy she probably should be more wall watching a little bit you know less junk food but you can't go wrong with either one and as you travel across the country you'll realize that pennsylvania is lucky to have two high quality convenience stores with decent food options i'll tell you though but in my back to about travel like it's for me it's been sort of full circle because i've been all over the state of pennsylvania and you sometimes lose respect for where you grew up and appreciation 
to like the countryside and, and sort of quaintness of Pennsylvania's small towns has been really neat. I mean, it's not in most in most places in Pennsylvania, it's not super commercialized, so it's always funny. I mean, especially during the political, you know, the election, it was quite interesting to see all the different towns and and, and their support for certain candidates. Those were pretty funny. I mean, I've saw some pretty elaborate signs for you know both candidates that you know you just wonder like what's going through people's heads if they're announcing it on the front lawn. Yeah, I saw some huge political signs when I was in Western Pennsylvania right before the election. But we'll get to labor and golf here. I joked about you being one of the more intense people I've ever met, but intensity can certainly be a great thing, and I think you harness that intensity and bring it to your job. Where does that intensity come from, and how has that translated so far into your work as a superintendent and the work you're doing now with Tyler Bloom Consulting? I would say that it really was sort of a, I guess it's it's an internal characteristic that was sort of developed each step of my career path. Even going back to youth sports, I was pretty active in whether it was baseball, wrestling, uh, coincidentally not football in, in, a, in a football town USA, but football was not a big you know, sport that I played. I, I think just it kind of started from an early age and just each step of my career I've had the right kind of mentors who certainly matched or exceeded that level of intensity. Um, and it can be it can be good and bad. I mean, there's definitely been times where I've had to learn to take a step back and evaluate how I'm coming across to people. And at times it can be overwhelming, you know, because I'm passionate. Just I think like anybody in this industry to be successful, or you know, out of this industry, if you want to be successful, you you got to go for it, give it all you got. So, but I've I've had to learn to really try to take a step back. Now, specifically in this role, probably be more of a listener than anything to really make recommendations or, you know, move forward in my business and and just kind of evaluate versus maybe being the go-getter all the time and and being forceful, if you want to call it that. You certainly have had an interesting year. Describe where you were when 2020 started and how does that compare to with where you are now? Oh, totally two different ends of the spectrum. I mean, I can just, uh, you know, recently kind of seeing where I'm at right now, looking back at the last year, and probably being, to, to look back, honestly, being, like, devastated, like, professionally. Um, not personally. I mean, everything personally. I mean, married two, two daughters. I had a second daughter on the way. But just kind of felt like I was not lost in who I was or what was important to me, but I just didn't feel like I was moving forward. And, you know, certainly bitten by the bug of seeing what other people you know, colleagues and stuff moving forward, and it just felt like the forces were against me in some way. And, and, and again, looking back now, like where I'm at today, all those, if you want to call them losses, I mean, I've, you and I have had a good enough relationship, and I'm, I was actively trying to get into that next level superintendent's job. Not that I wasn't happy with the existing place I was at, enjoyed my time there, but I think like anybody who's, you know, wants to make a mark and be successful, you're always shooting for that next, you know, that next opportunity. I just couldn't get it there. And I just remember going through like sort of a self-evaluation process of maybe the career decisions I made or some of the things that I was doing um, in my current job that how could I leverage that uh, to move forward. And then obviously kind of moving into 2020, early this year, COVID hit. A number of factors, whether it was our our business, 
you know, the golf industry was impacted in numerous ways, but for us, it was kind of at my current time was looking at, man, are we going to survive? And I'd already been through all these disappointments um, of not getting that next job. And I kind of, at the time, I already had things going in a direction to formalize this concept of a labor consulting um, and, and had already pre-existing relationships, client relationships, and had a really good sense of what I needed to do. It was just more of, you know, do, do, I, do I have the, if you want to call it the cojones, to jump into it full time? Um, and, and I thought that long term, that's where it was going to be. But obviously not at the age of 33, COVID hits. My wife loses her job. Um, we're in a position with one daughter that was going to be two, and another daughter going to be born in April. No family support whatsoever. Um, and, and I mean that because they're located in Central Penn, you know, three hours away from Baltimore. And, um, you know, it just seemed like the stars were aligning to say, if, if you're going to make a career change, let's do it now versus waiting another two, three, four years, and I could jump into this now and kind of, you know, take my lumps early. And, you know, so we had our you know, second daughter late April, made the change in June, and here I am now, just completed literally two days ago my first superintendent search. So after being, you know, trying to get into that next level opportunity, here I was, all those skills and, and those processes that I had been a part of in, in my network, I think brought that value to, you know, this first search. And it was super rewarding for me to feel like not only could I help a club that needed maybe some direction and needed some outside opinion, but I also could help almost like my brother and superintendents and, and, and or assistant managers get to that next career step. And quite honestly, that's my passion. And it, and it came through in this process. So, yeah, it's, I know it's a long-winded answer, but it's been quite a year, and I never gave up. I never once sat there and thought I couldn't do something great. I just needed to find my, you know, specific niche. You're just getting started. You're about six months into this from your experiences over the past six months. How much demand is out there to, for clubs and superintendents to have outside help with their labor situations to improve them? I think it's pretty easy to say that demand is there, right? I mean, whether it's surveys that are done by GCI or whatever industry channel, or you go to chapter meetings and you hear the same conversations that I've heard for the last five, six, ten years, possibly going back, the demand's there. I think it's more so the process that clubs have to take or the open-mindedness that there's some, there's somebody out there that can help them, right? So it's different. It's like... The, the analogy I'll use is when any sort of new chemical or fungicide fertilizer comes in the market, you know, there's going to be early adopters that get behind it. And, and then there's going to be some people who kind of wait to see. So I think similarly, it's like that in my situation that some people still need to kind of fill me out a little bit, see what I'm all about. And, and in fairness, I need, to, I need to refine what I'm doing each step of the way. But clubs have to get behind it, um, and they need, they need to be educated. If anything, just the education process. I mean, you don't know what you don't know. I've learned that in six months of how many – it's not superintendents, it's clubs, GMs, HR departments that are clueless on the resources that are out there to help support them. And so I kind of feel like I'm maybe a more of a conduit between 
Um, the demand's there, no question, at every level, whether it's entry level, all the way up to assistant, even in some cases, the superintendent level. Clubs need education and they need support because they're so far behind in the competitive landscape of hiring and recruiting. What is it about the golf industry that makes it so tough for clubs and facilities to fill open positions? And this isn't just a maintenance thing. This, this affects all parts of the, yeah. the club. Listen, I can go into debate about wage skills and compensation, and, and I think that's part of it, um, certainly. But I think it has more to do with awareness. In the sense that job seekers, if you kind of take a step back from an outside perspective, the average person doesn't know this job exists. They have no inclination that working at a golf or country club could lead to, you know, re- remarkable career-fulfilling, you know, opportunities. They have, they have no concept of that. So there's a barrier there that's going to take more than one person to break down. It's going to be a collective effort. And so then the question becomes, how much time do I invest into doing that? Oh, you're going to invest. I look at it two ways. You don't put the time and do the outreach and you, and you build relationships with your community or community colleges and university systems, just talent in general. And you're going to suffer through each season not having pipelines to pull people from. Or you do kind of what I had to do out of necessity. You put the time into building that awareness with job seekers, workforce agencies, apprenticeship, uh, apprenticeship programs, um, people with disabilities. You find those resources and you take the time not anything that's going to be, you know, insurmountable or overwhelming, but you keep kind of building those relationships. And then at some point, it just all of a sudden clicks. You have two options. You either, again, you sort of live through the pain of not having people, and then you put yourself and your club at risk for not completing the job, or you take away a little bit of some of the things that you were doing before, maybe take some time and reevaluate what your talent strategic plan is and focus on that a little bit more. Tyler, I had a superintendent tell me last week that during the Great Recession, golf facilities had labor, but they didn't have any money for capital improvements. And he said that the situation now is completely different. Facilities, the good ones at least, have money, but they don't have labor. How true is that, and how has 2020 affected the labor supply in the the golf industry? I'll at least speak on from what I've seen. I don't think much has changed. If anything, it's gotten worse because now superintendents or clubs are restricting resources. They're feeling the impacts of COVID, and they're, they're trying to cut and save as much as they can. But the same issue of people aren't aware of our industry is at the forefront, and that's not going to change unless, unless superintendents or clubs invest into outreach. They invest into building um, – you know, making a fo- I guess making a focus towards being a community partner. If that's the right word. A destination place of employment is something I've heard in the industry. So I agree with you 100. percent Now they don't have the they don't have the, the bodies to facilitate the work um, and get to their goals. So it puts people at risk. And you know, to credit to credit the board, they don't get time. They don't get time because they've got their own jobs, right? So. They're relying on the experts, whether that's the GM, the the club leadership team, to figure it out. What type of personal toll do you think 2020 has had on superintendents? They've done an amazing job of getting the work done with 
significantly fewer bodies. And this isn't just a Pennsylvania, Northeast, Mid-Atlantic thing. This has been the case all over the, the country. But based on your observations and discussions, uh, what, what type of wear and tear has this taken on superintendents getting the job done to the level they have this year with, so, with fewer labor resources? I would tell you it's, it's definitely people are in great, I think, overall in really good spirits. I think it's been a tough year agronomically. You know, the weather's been really difficult in the northeast mid-Atlantic part of the country. It was like, you know, you're either super dry throughout the month of August or you're super wet. I mean, it was, it, and the extremes were, you know, pretty wide. I, I learned very quickly, enthusiastic as I was jumping into this and feeling like I could help other people. I learned pretty quickly that it was overwhelming because as I was out in travels in you know, July, August, I had to kind of take a step back and think, all right, Tyler, like how, how much time do these people really have, superintendents have for whether it's business meetings, um, you know, they, do they really want to get coached up on, on, on talent at this point? And sometimes it's needed to just be there to be a resource and think, you know, I've been in that spot. Like I can look back at five, six years of that same time period, like last week of July, for, you know, the next month just being uber stressed out. And, you know, if anything, I just wanted to be a soundboard and just let people know, hey, I'm here if you need somebody to talk to. Um, I've been through this. Here's what I found. Here's some solutions. And, you know, I think that kind of stuff goes a long way. But to your point, I think, for the most part, pretty upbeat. I've heard rounds have been up, you know, pretty consistently across the board. It seems clubs are willing to spend money, actually, now, whether it's on capital improvements because they realize golf, really drive the ship, you know, almost 100% of the time. If people are out playing golf, they're spending money in the clubhouse. Uh, the kids are coming there playing, you know, junior golf, or they're at the pool. Moms, wives are, you know, spending time at the facility too. So I think it's it's uh, optimistic versus early in the year. I remember myself being sort of like doom and gloom, like what's going to happen here? And it seems like things have turned around, just, you know, Due to the efforts of superintendents and the work they do, the outreach from our chapters or association, um, people like you who, who, who really, I think, educated people and made them aware about how great the golf industry can be physically, mentally, and socially. So um, I'm pretty optimistic personally. Tyler, your business is just you. I mean, you do all the travel, all the marketing, all the hands-on work, all the legal work. How does running a, at the moment, as a one-person business compare to leading a golf course maintenance operation, which is a, a team of people? Very similar, to be honest with you. And I think um, to credit the industry and to credit the job, it really prepares you to be, you know, adaptable, multifaceted, uh, really have a, a variety of skills because, you know, you're dealing with so many changing variables. What I learned very early um, back in those you know, first three months was I was trying to do too much by myself. Similar to a golf course superintendent, you take so much on um, because you're prideful. Um, you have a certain way you want to go about things. But I realized for me to grow and, and service people and, and, and just provide good service as a whole, I needed to delegate things and find different ways to scale business operations differently. Right. So I'm a I'm like I, I like chess matches, like I like puzzle pieces and trying to figure out, like, where do I need to spend my time? You know, time management It's just it's a little bit different than maybe the superintendent where it's I don't want to say routine and regimented, but 
you kind of know you have to have a golf course prep by 7, 8 o'clock in the morning. You have certain areas that you need to be, whether it's meetings, uh, meetings, hand watering, observation, you know, staff, staff training. It's no different. It's just, the, you know, the structure of my day is quite different than it was, and it's, it's got to be adaptable to, you know, client needs. So, for example, today, like I was on the road at 4 a.m., 5 a.m., to drive three hours to meet with three, four clients. Well, in between that time, I know what time I can start calling other superintendents or, you know, other business partners and, and map out my day a little bit differently. I would tell you what's been nice and different is a lot of times during the day I have time to, to spend with my wife or, or my two daughters, and then maybe when they go to bed I'll spend an extra hour or two at night, you know, game planning for the next day, responding to emails or just organizing different things. But, you know, it, it's the same it's the same sort of mentality as a superintendent, just a different platform. Uh, but I've had to learn how to delegate and build business differently. It's kind of interesting. Most consultants that I know have grown children or, or no children, and they're a bit older. You're 33, and you're a consultant. You have two children that are three and under. You're married. How do you balance the demands of your current job with family life? Well, number one, i got to give credit to my wife. She has been an unbelievable support partner for me in this, and she knew when I made this change that it wasn't going to be easy. Um, so I think from a, you know, just uh, I couldn't ask for a better support partner than my wife. There were, and I think it's adapting, like it's evolving. Like she just went back to work full time, um, you know. So my schedule's changing, changing a little bit, but I have a system. Like I, I know the consistency that I need. With the girls, again, it's been nice that I can be there sort of in the morning when they get up, unless I'm on the road, get them set up. Um, my parents live 20 minutes away. We, you know, ironically, I live with my in-laws right now um, and have been. It's kind of, I never thought I'd be living with my in-laws or my parents. You know, it's kind of funny, but um, we had to do it. It was a sacrifice we needed to do to get to where we really wanted, and things have kind of fell into place. Um, this never would have been possible to do this without family support. It just would, there's no way I could have constructed this um, financially, logistically, just not possible. But you know, now that things have evolved over six months, I kind of have a, a routine of business and kind of know my structure, you know, to a, to a large degree. And I'm sure it'll continue to evolve. But you know, especially then with COVID, like we couldn't put the kids in daycare because we didn't trust putting them in that situation. Um, so it just seemed like, again, it's like a superintendent. Like, you, you do the best to prepare and get a game plan for things, but you have to be adaptable. And again, it really came down to having family support. Without it, this, there's no way I would have survived. I, I, would, have, I would have made an instrumentally incorrect decision, um, but, but they were bought in from the get-go. What are the stresses of your current job, and how do they compare to the stresses that a superintendent faces? Well, the similarity is, is the variables that there's a lot of uncontrollable factors out there in terms of what do people perceive of Tyler Bloom, right? And so you have to build that relationship, and you have to you have to really focus on that aspect. Um, and those, there's some variables that change, like is a is a club financially secure enough to to take to take someone on like me? You know, and I'm, I certainly don't feel like my what I'm asking is you know outrageous. I think it's very fair. 
but there's those kind of variables that are out of my control. And so you have to do your research. You have to build rapport. Um, you know, similar to superintendent, that the, the variables are mother nature and they're going to give you different, they're going to give you different situations and circumstances throughout, you know, the course of the year. So I'm just trying to, in some ways, trying to understand um, clients and what their needs are and just be, you know, be upfront, honest, transparent. Um, differences, differences would be from stress level. I mean, I can just tell you flat out is, you know, we did a great job. I think my wife and I have planning our exits so financially we were we were pretty set i knew this was going to take about four to five months until i could get reoccurring income or cash flow right so that stress though when you're looking at your bank account you know when those uh when when the the rainy day funds are going going down and you're trying to build a business and you're trying to set up systems whether it's marketing campaigns um traveling i mean just the cost of traveling those things were stresses, but I never got, I never, I never got afraid of, I never was afraid that this wasn't going to work out. I knew it would. It was just going to take some time. I think stressors just, uh, again, some days I'm on the road, like I could be away three, four days on the road, and that's hard not being there with my wife or as a superintendent. I always knew I'd be back in my house at, you know, four or five o'clock every night so that can sort of convenience um and that puts different stress on you know relationship and that's like i said i, I had to have that i had to have that trust and buy-in for my wife or this there's, there's no way in my family or this never would have you know evolved it worked I, i'd already been done with it in case closed um so I, i would say that's probably the top thing that really stands out is just sort of being away from your family at times and that's what you have to do you know if you want to be successful uh, back to dealing with clubs and members and committees, uh, what's the biggest misconception about labor and staff development you've observed thus far in your travels and meetings with superintendents and club officials? Do club officials understand the labor challenges that the golf industry's facing, or do they just see a golf course that looks and plays nice and just uh, assume that everything's going well? I think a bit of both. I will, to give credit, I think superintendents are being more active in – educating, and I think the GMs and the HR departments are aware of it, right, of it, of it as a pretty big issue, but there still seems to be, like, gaps between, like, how does that information get disseminated from the, the boardroom to the rest of the membership? And you know, it's no fault of any superintendents whatsoever, but that's out of their control. Fortunately, they, sometimes it seems like they're getting put in bad spots and people make assumptions. Um, they make assumptions on whether it's somebody's skill set, uh, somebody's agronomic programs, and, and not all situations, but I do think that people have to keep it at the forefront of the conversation. The, the people who I see doing a really good job, they're, they're educating their board, their GM, on a monthly basis. They're giving staffing reports. They're talking about um, what turnover is looking like. They're, they're building that story so when it comes to the budget season they've got data to, to demonstrate here's what we need to do and this is where our gaps were you know so collecting that data whether it's labor tracking um again just looking at turnover or how long it's taking to actually fill a position you know once it's posted 
I mean, those metrics are important, but again, superintendents are so dang busy, they don't have time to develop that sort of education. So sometimes that's where my role comes in, is just to be an educator for them, not necessarily to just, you know, support the superintendent wholeheartedly, but to be a, a strategic partner for the club so, so I can communicate that message, um, you know, from the superintendent to their board. And I, and I think I have enough information and, and the skill set to do that and relate to, you know, clubs. Um, I also think, though, too, like, here's where I think I, where I help a lot of superintendents, they didn't go to school to be recruiters. Like, they didn't go to get an HR background. And that's, it's a skill that's learned. It's not something that's taught. And so I think that's important for people to educate, you know, their key stakeholders that and ask for support. Right? Don't be, don't beat yourself up to think that you should be an expert in recruiting. And by no means is Tyler Bloom an expert, but I do have a, a, a little bit of formalized training and an obvious practical success. Um, but they're paid to grow grass and service members with conditioning. At the end of the day, that's what it comes down. They need to have a support team, and that includes their HR team. Um, an HR team that can facilitate that. In many cases, clubs don't even have a full-on HR team that can focus on talent acquisition. Their HR teams are dealing with compliance issues, um, basic onboarding. I mean, in some instances, most instances, I see HR you know, teams now responsible for more of like a controller-type role or a system GM-type role. So, you know, it's really hard, and these, these boards don't, club officials don't understand that. You know, they don't look at it as a day-to-day business. They're, they're coming in there once or twice a week on weekends to play golf, and they don't understand the inner workings of running that business. It's, it's kind of funny. It's, it's really funny in my – it's really funny from my perspective to sometimes, from my observation, they just don't know what they don't know. And that's where communication and that continual education is so critical. Um, for superintendents and you know even GMs to, to make sure that they let their stakeholders know. Tyler, is there any reason to believe the industry's labor shortage will decrease next year, or do you think it's going to be many of the same things we're hearing here in 2020, in 2021 about labor and shortages and sh- struggles filling positions? It's so site specific. I don't even want to call it region specific. It's site specific because like I could go. I, like Northeast Pennsylvania, let's just use that as an example. You could have clubs, you could have five clubs within 10 minutes of each other, and they all have different, like, labor shortage, labor issues. Some of them might be struggling to get entry-level people in. Others might be challenged to get assistance in. And then there might be that one club, and it's, and it's not your premier club. It could just be your average private facility where they've done a great job of building a good workplace culture, They've spent the time developing talent management plans. Um, they've done the outreach, and they're having success with no issues. So it's site to site, even all within the same region. I personally, my opinion is, I don't think it gets any better. It only gets better for each club or each department if, if somebody's working hard at creating an environment that people want to be involved in. They want to stay there. They see growth opportunity, and they're treated, they're treated fairly. Tyler, you are in a Dunkin' Donuts parking lot right now. I can't tell you how many times I've seen in my travels where I've pulled into businesses like a Dunkin' Donuts and they've just been overwhelmed, right? Like there are too many people in line and customers start pulling away because they just don't have the, the labor to get people in and out efficiently and maximize their revenue. Uh, you look at golf, 
kind of a similar situation, right? Like a lot of golf courses are having strong years. There's this surge. It looks like the surge is going to at least continue into the first half of next year. How could labor shortages affect revenue at clubs? And do you see that this, this could be a negative next year where there, there are demands at clubs and facilities and there just aren't enough bodies around to satisfy those demands and maximize revenue? I'm probably not the expert on this you know, topic specifically. There's you know, other resources in the industry that could probably quantify that. But I would say that clubs or you know, clubs that are not being creative in structuring their staff, Give it, and an example would be, you look at an employee who's laid off from you know whatever business, and they come to your door, and you're telling them that it's only a seasonal position. I mean, you're really shortchanging yourself up front. So I actually recommend to a lot of clubs right now that you know, or maybe they have a lot of winter events, and obviously COVID's impacting this. You know, from from holiday celebrations and gatherings, you know, inside, but. I think if clubs kind of looked at the, a club-wide program where maybe some of those seasonal employees that are on the golf course, you know, during the months of April through April through October, November, then transition more into clubhouse operations. So they're getting a very global vision of, of the business. I think it'll help them, number one, stay staffed and give people reason to want to be there, but they're also going to diversify the skill sets of their employees. Don't look at them as being siloed into one department. Try to give them multiple experiences. So many times at Sparrow's Point, I remember we would pull people from the pro shop staff that, quite frankly, weren't a good fit um, in people interactions, and that's a really critical component of that job. It's just that you know they're the first face, typically, when somebody comes to, comes to the golf facility. So I would bring them on our staff, and they'd, and they'd hit a home run. They'd be great. They'd work great with our staff. And I even had staff that I knew, you know, would be great for facilities maintenance in the off-season. So I would send staff up there to do, whether it's clubhouse painting, whether it's plumbing work, um, you know, just a variety of different skills. So I, I think clubs have to look at their whole club as one unit and maybe some creative opportunities in there to keep themselves staffed um, throughout the season. So it's maybe a little bit different aside from what you're saying, but... I'd be, it'd be, I'm not the expert on the uh, revenue standpoint, but you will be eventually. Be the, the more time you talk to club officials and GMs, you you you'll get there quickly, Tyler. <laughs> one step at a time. One step at a time. <laughs> no, that's a great answer, and that, that, that's a great point, right? If you want to maximize the people on your staff and, and get the most out of the, the talent and create the most value for them long term, it's teach them as many jobs as possible and winter is a good time to do that. My staff, I think for the most part, you know, when I, I remember when we tried to introduce this kind of concept, my staff was not happy with me um, whatsoever because they enjoyed the kind of the repetition that they had. But I think as they got more involved, they became assets to the club. Members could depend on them, you know, or the GM could depend on them in a pinch. And we all know that. I mean, I think, I think it's by and large, what I've heard of my travels is, golf course maintenance crews do more than just grow grass. They do more than just the mowing, the trimming. They're, they're the people who, in a pinch, can move tables, can set events up. Um, if there's a pipe broken in the clubhouse or at the swimming pool, they're the ones that typically get depended on, and that's what you want. So I think golf course superintendents, you know, in a, in, in a I guess you could say to be visionary, 
they have to look at themselves as being that go-to department. And I use it to my advantage. So I use it to my advantage when I needed to go for a dollar more hour pay increase for an employee, when I needed to set up continued education funds, or anything that I could do to support employees. I was almost relentless, um, probably to an annoyance, but I knew at the end of the day that any member called me and said, we need this done, or or general manager needed this done, I might have got frustrated if it disrupted our mornings, but I always made sure we were available. And I think those kind of initiatives or that sort of mindset could really help a lot of people. It's all one team, right? Absolutely. If, if you paint the, the clubhouse or if you mow the, the 11th green, you're, you're still contributing to, to that team. I, I hope this is, uh, does not come across poorly. Um, because, again, I'm 33. I don't know everything, and I don't pretend to be. But what I have seen in my travels consistently is if there's tension, like if there's tension between a golf course superintendent and other departments, and, and I can got it, get a sense that there's like sort of this siloed approach and territorial, it's only hurting them. Because at the end of the day, the buck stops at the GMs. The, the club officials see it that way, too. Like you're only hurting your messaging. So... I think sometimes taking a step back, especially in the wintertime, to evaluate that of how you can be more, you know, accommodating. I guess you could say being a team player, it's only going to help you build the rapport that you need, one, to stay employed, and, and two, to, to really get what you need to support your staff. If they see that you're only focused on your niche area and you're always being territorial or, oh, I have to go and do this again, or guys have to do this, well, this is why I couldn't get this done that's just not going to work in the long run. It's going to come back to bite you in the butt a little bit. And again, I'm not an expert, and I think that each situation um, requires different management styles and different approaches on things, and I understand where it gets frustrating where you feel like you're being taken advantage of. But at the end of the day, being a team player and looking out for the entire organization, those things end up helping out in the long run. And it's the same thing at a publishing company, Tyler. We have 20 magazines here at, at GIE Media, and sometimes Matt Lowell and myself, even though business cards say golf course industry, we get pulled into helping other publications. And, and the more we do that and the more willingly we do that, the more it's going to help our, our standing at the company. So, Yeah, absolutely. Anyway, uh, two, two last things here. What will the focus be for you? During the winter, and is the winter potentially going to be busier for you than even a, a summer would be? The way it looks, yeah, right now, very busy. Um, doing a variety of education events, whether it's Zoom, uh, a Zoom series right now, I'm going to be starting today with for assistant managers on, you know, these interpersonal skill sets, managerial-type skill sets, and, and trying to coach them up um, because, it, you know, again, their direct reports don't have the time to do it, and they need a resource, so... You know, just trying to help educate them, make them better, give them some, you know, additional insights to these interview processes. Um, like I said, I just completed the first superintendent search and into a second one, and looks like it'll be a third one coming up here shortly. So, I mean, it's a lot of time, you know, just the, the conversations with candidates, back and forth with the committees, staying structured that way, looking at how do I grow my business and do it in a sustainable way so I don't shortchange myself, but on the same token, don't. I've got to go through this methodically because I, I see this as a long-term career. Um, I, I see the need throughout the industry, state-to-state, state, the issue of labor um, from entry level to all the way up to the you know, superintendent level. 
need different they need help in different ways so just trying to be patient with myself a little bit more um you're correct i mean the summer months guys don't have time for this they don't have time to, to really sit down and have a thorough approach and um, that's where i think they, they they hire me to do all this legwork up front so then they have people you know in the summer months um there's nothing there would be nothing wrong with being a little bit less busy in the summertime and maybe golfing myself. Where can listeners, readers, and social media followers uh, find you and learn more about, about the services you offer? I have to laugh. One of my close friends, Matt Powell, who's a golf course superintendent up at Dedham Golf and Polo, said to me recently, where don't I see you, right? <laughs> Which can be a little overwhelming at times, but uh, on social channels, Twitter, Facebook a little bit, Instagram, my, my website, you know, has some more information, but honestly, just reach out, phone call, text message, I want to set up a Zoom call just to have a conversation. Um, I enjoy the industry. I, I, I really I really jumped into this because I felt like I could help superintendents primarily. Um, as a result, I'd help clubs as well and help employees find career options. I mean, at the end of the day, that's what it's about is hopefully mentoring the next generation um, of superintendents and leaders in, in the industry, and that can be in different roles, whether it's in sales, whether it's, you know, a pub, for a publisher, working for a publisher, a publication. Um, you know, I just, I just, I love the game of golf, and I think that this is, this is all I've ever wanted to be around. I feel like I've found my niche, um, and, and I look forward to helping, helping the industry. Well, Tyler, it's always a joy to, speak with you uh thanks for everything you do for the golf industry and you do for us here at golf course industry and i'm sure we'll probably be talking again in a few days although not on a recorded podcast format yeah thanks so much i appreciate it and and i do want to say i there's so many people who have been extremely supportive of me um through this you know this journey and and throughout my career and you know, it's hard to say one person, but there's been a lot of influences, and I, I genuinely appreciate it, and I, I don't get too many opportunities.